Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Mobile phone companies say they offer home internet. But if their internet comes from a cell phone network, you should know. It's just phone internet, not home internet. Keep your home up to speed with Cox. Cox internet is faster and has more reliable download speeds than 5G home internet. Cox is the real home internet you're looking for. Based on Cox analysis of UCLA speed test intelligence data, Q3 2022 and Cox serviceable areas, visit cox.com internet for details. Welcome to another episode of Duncan Dynasty. I am your host, Garrett Bouquet. We have a very special guest with us for this week's episode. His name is Scott Levine. Uh, he uh, He's a fellow graduate of the sports business classroom from last month. It was a pleasure uh, getting to meet him. And he also uh, has uh, written a few articles for the 94feetreport.com. Uh, he's got an article coming up on Nikola Miritich. He's also done uh, some past articles, including one on uh, Devin Booker. Scott, thank you so much for coming on. Well, yeah, thank you, Garrett. And I'm, I'm glad it was a pleasure meeting me. I enjoyed hearing your opinion on you know, your movie reviews along with basketball. Being able to talk about Whiplash was fun. Yes. You thought that was the best movie of 2014. So I, I knew we'd get along as soon as you uh, shared that opinion with me. Yeah, this uh, this this year has been an excellent year for movies as well. I just uh, just the other day I caught uh, Black Klansman, the new Spike Lee movie, and that was excellent. Yeah, I've been meaning to see that myself. I was going to go uh, last weekend, but it fell through. But luckily, I'll probably get a more empty movie theater. My friends, uh, they actually saw Slenderman instead because it's one of the few movies you can see with a movie pass nowadays. Oh yes. And I wasn't in- <laughs> and I, I wasn't interested in that, so I didn't go. Uh, they said it wasn't very good, and they're canceling their movie pass. It seems like the thing to do nowadays. Um, but yeah, we're hopefully I'll see Black Klansman with them um, this week. Yeah, the uh, yeah I've been a, a member of Movie Pass uh, since uh, the end of last year, and that has been uh, one heck of a roller coaster ride for sure. Uh, but uh, let's uh, let's get to the basketball because, of course, this is an NBA podcast and. Uh, the, the subject that we're going to discuss this week is uh, our top 30 NBA players list for this upcoming NBA season. Uh, we both uh, did a little prep on our own lists uh, separately, so we're going to have uh, a few surprises, hopefully for each other along the way, and hopefully for you listening. Uh, but uh, Scott, without further ado, let's hear uh, who is your number one uh, player. I'm sure this isn't going to be much of a surprise, but who is your number one guy uh, for next season? Yeah, so this is absolutely the least controversial thing I'll say on this podcast by far. My number one player is LeBron James, and uh, I don't really feel like I need to really throw any stats out there or anything to back that up. Right. I mean, he is—he's uh, been far and away the best guy for uh, for probably close to a decade, if not longer, at this point. Um, you know, uh, since you're not throwing out any stats, I'll just men- uh, mention one stat, and this is his 2018 NBA playoff numbers. This is for the entire postseason. 34 points per game, 9.1 rebounds, 9 assists, 1.4 steals, 61.9% true shooting, 
and uh, a 35% usage rate. Uh, you know, those are just monster numbers and, you know, one of the best, especially offensive, postseasons of all time. Yeah, it's funny because it's hard for me to process those numbers, and so sometimes when people talk about LeBron's statistics, I kind of zone out because it's just really difficult to wrap your head around, and I'm just like, oh yeah, it's kind of how I view LeBron. Like, oh yeah, that's LeBron. Um, that's, that's what he does. You know, that's, that's nothing. That's not a big deal, but shows how lucky we are to have him and how much we take him for granted. Uh, I, I can't wait to see him in Los Angeles. That's probably the thing I'm looking forward to about next season the most, and yeah, I'll just continue to appreciate every year that he stays in the league. Yeah, it, uh, it has been an absolute pleasure. And me, uh, being from Ohio, I've watched a ton of his games over the years. And, and yeah, it has been an absolute delight. Uh, of course, number one for me is also LeBron. So I'll move on to my number two now. And that is uh, Stephen Curry. And uh, one, one thing I, uh, you know, a lot of people probably have him a little bit lower. I don't know about you, but... But I still think he is, uh, you know, arguably the best offensive player in the entire league. Uh, you know, looking at uh, in 2015-16, of course, he won that unanimous MVP. Everybody considered him to be the best player, especially during that regular season. But last year, you know, despite playing in fewer games, he had some injuries and only participated in 51 of the, the Warriors' contests. But uh, his true shooting percentage was 67.5%, which was actually better than his unanimous MVP season. Uh, you know, his points per game was a few points lower, but rebounds, assists, steals, all pretty much in the ballpark. Uh, so, you know, I, people say, you know, he's getting older and he, he's lost a little bit, but it, it's not much. I think he's still pretty close to the top of his game. Yeah, I think that's totally understandable. I want a slightly different direction. With Kevin Durant as my second best player. Okay. And I just think that when you look at what is what what, what has the makings of like the best players in the league, this is kind of a theme among my top three, is you have guys who can take over in every facet of the game. Right. I know Kevin Durant isn't like a kind of an inconsistent defender, but when he wants to be, he could be one of the best defenders in the league. Even if he had no jump shot, he could like find his way to a starting lineup by just being a rim protector under there. And when you look at the shooting numbers, obviously some of it's inflated by being on the Warriors and having your number two guy, Steph Curry, uh, setting him up for open looks. But it still seems crazy even for that. His catch-and-shoot three-point percentage last season uh, was actually 48%, which is makes me think that if he really <laughs> wanted to, like if he really wanted to, he could be the first member of the 50-50-90 club. Yes. <laughs> um, if he just really wanted to zero in on being efficient. And you combine that with his all-NBA caliber defense when he feels like it and his ability to just pull up from 28 feet whenever his team needs a bucket. We've seen it uh, two years in a row against the Cavaliers when it seemed like the result was in question in some of the games he just is comfortable making those shots. You know, obviously he has his detractors because of his decision to join Golden State, but... I thought he was the second best player when he was in OKC, and I still do. Yeah, I mean, uh, that's that's totally fair. I, I understand all the things that are appealing about Kevin Durant. Uh, as you mentioned, the rim protection for a guy that typically plays small forward, but he is basically a seven-footer. Uh, you know, he can, he can play on the ball and isolate. He's one of the best isolation scorers in the league, but then also his three-point shooting. Uh, you know, it's, uh, uh, it's pretty impressive. My, my biggest... 
thing in terms of maybe rating Curry a little bit higher is the effect he has on his teammates on the offensive end. I feel like with Durant, it's it's a lot of just getting his own shot and or, you know, ca- those catch-and-shoot opportunities that teammates set him up. But with Curry, he's oftentimes drawing those double teams, you know, 30 feet away from the basket, which makes things so much easier for everyone around him. I definitely agree with that. Uh, I think I definitely took a more uh, individualistic approach to, uh, you know, performance Yeah. in my rankings. Um because it becomes hard for me personally to, you know, say what's Steph and what's Draymond and what's Clay because those are three players whose offensive production is so intertwined with one another's, especially, you know, Draymond and Clay for Steph. But at the same time, I do want to credit Draymond for, like, filling that short role uh, position where he catches the ball and makes a pass. But I also understand he gets such wide-open lanes because of Steph. And right. you're right that if you want to separate, like, if you want to try to like place credit um, on why why the Warriors' offense is so good, it's probably Steph over Durant. I guess my only uh, thing is I just see time and time again in the playoffs, you know, the guys who can just get a bucket out of thin air, along with being a catalyst for a elite offense, are my preference. Yeah, and that's that's totally fair. So uh, so you had Durant at two. Who's your uh, who's your number three choice then? Yeah, so I'll, we'll talk. I'll, I'll, I had uh, Steph Curry four, I should just say. Um, okay. So number three, and this is hard for me to rank because he hasn't played an entire season, pretty much. It's Kawhi Leonard. Okay, I had the, I had the same number three. All right, that makes sense. Um, and he kind of is the last of the top three on mine, or that that tier. Obviously, LeBron's in a tier of his own, and Durant's a tier above Kawhi, but he's the last of the guys in the NBA who I really feel can do everything on the yes. court. Yes. Mm-hmm. And, you know, can be primary creators, can be, you know, lead defenders, can be excellent off-ball players. And those are the guys who I would most want to, uh, you know, start a team with personally. um, Just because it allows you to fill the rest of the roster however you want. Um, And we all know about Kawhi's defensive prowess, but I think that... and, And what really keeps him at number three for me, despite missing a season, is just his stats uh, in... The year, which I thought he was arguably an MVP candidate, I probably would have given it to Harden or Westbrook, but he was right there. And what's amazing is he had an effective field goal percentage of 54%, which isn't great until you realize that he didn't get to the rim that often, and he didn't shoot from threes that often. According to Cleaning the Glass, he shot 21% of his shots at the rim and 27% of his shots from three, which is pretty low for a wing scorer in both departments. Right. He shot 52% of his shots from mid-range and was still able to you know, score, be, be a, like a 25-whatever tw- uh, points per game score, conjuring um, buckets out of nothing a lot of the time. You know, Earlier when Tony Parker and Tim Duncan were around him, he had more opportunities to spot up, but he adjusted his game and became you know, that, that, that alpha guy despite not despite having inferior teammates and that's what really sold uh, me for Kawhi um, or sold me on Kawhi rather like before then I was like yeah he's probably a top five player but now I'm like no he's when healthy a top three player well right and you know you you're mentioning all those offensive numbers but he was doing that and still being the the monster on defense that he's been his whole career I think he finished third in defensive player of the year voting that season uh, but but that playoffs too you know the the year where 
you know, he, he eventually succumbed to an ankle injury, a couple ankle injuries in that play where Zaza stepped, uh, stepped below him on that jumper. But that postseason, he was playing at such a crazy high level. He was averaging 27.7 points per game, 7.8 rebounds, 4.6 assists, 1.7 steals on 67.2% true shooting, and 45.5% from the from downtown, and also getting to the free throw line 8.5 times and shooting 93% from the charity stripe. The guy was an absolute monster, and you know one of the key reasons why the Spurs were up 25 on the Warriors prior to him going down. Yeah, and we haven't even mentioned that that, that uh, 2017 Spurs squad won 60 games. Right. And... Yes, some of that can be contributed to, you know, Pop's coaching, the defensive discipline, the fact that, you know, their defensive scheme, the drop coverage, tends to work better in the regular season and might make their win total look slightly inflated to, uh, compared to how they might do in the playoffs. But 60 wins is 60 wins, and you can't really point to, other than Aldridge, uh, you know, a bona fide offensive weapon on that team. So the fact that he was able to carry them to 60 wins is, is especially impressive in my book. Well, yeah, and you know they they were able to they were able to win forty seven games this past year with largely the same roster minus Kawhi. So you know guys that are that are worth thirteen wins. You know that that's and, one of the reasons why you're up there in amongst the the greats in the game. And not just thirteen wins. Like the the jump from forty seven to sixty is the hardest one in the league. You can see any team cobble together forty seven. They just really focus on winning now and. You know, flipping all their picks. We've seen that with the Pelicans. They got to 48 wins. They haven't used a first round pick in ages. But other than like trading Buddy Heald right after, uh, or after they picked him. Um, but it goes to show that jump to 60. Not every team can do that, and that shouldn't be taken lightly. Yes, yes, certainly. Uh, you know, those those teams with 47 wins are almost always you know pretenders when it comes to the playoffs. But if you're a 60-win team, you're almost always in that contender category. So that is a huge discrepancy there. Uh, so so that was both of our number three uh, pick. So I'll move on to, you mentioned Steph Curry was your number four, and my number four was Kevin Durant. So we basically just flipped those two guys. Uh, but uh, one thing I wanted to, to talk about a little bit, just comparing those two players again, and and again, it's it's a little bit difficult to determine who's the best player given that they play on the same team. Uh, but uh, going back to, to this most recent NBA Finals where Kevin Durant won Finals MVP, I personally thought it should have been Steph's award. What, what were your thoughts on that? I thought it should have been Steph, too. Um, I thought that near the end there, we really saw kind of vintage Steph. But at the same time... Uh, Durant had the theatrics, you know, with the late game three shot. And I just generally think that uh, the voting skews towards the person who has to guard LeBron. Yep. Um, I think LeBron has so much respect among the media, and rightly so, that whoever, either it's either going to be LeBron or whoever guarded LeBron. That's the way it's been since 2012. You know, Biggie won it in 2015, Kawhi won it in 2014, Durant won it these past two years. Those were the guys who were mainly on LeBron. Yeah, and uh, you know, Durant even got a lot of credit uh, for defending LeBron despite allowing LeBron to go for fifty-one uh, in in Game One. If you uh, if you let LeBron score fifty-one, but your team wins, then that's a, that's a huge success in my book. <laughs> right, but uh, but yeah, the uh, the Game Three, as you mentioned, I think that was the deciding factor for a lot of the voters. That that was the game where Kevin Durant had. You know the the breakthrough performance and Curry played horribly, 
but in games one, two, and four, uh, I think there's a there's a genuine argument that Curry was the was the better player. And when it comes to most valuable, in my eyes, uh, if you're the most valuable player for your team for three of the four victories, that should be your award. But uh, but you know, looking at the overall stats, including that game three, uh, Durant had the better numbers. And I actually thought Steph Curry should have won Finals MVP in 2015 when Iguodala won it. But yes. it's because he looked especially bad in the first two Warriors losses that he didn't. I don't know where I fall on this, but I generally think that performances in team wins should be weighted more than performances in team losses in the Finals just because you only have to win four out of seven. So if your team loses and you play well, I just don't value that as much. I don't know. Maybe that's maybe that's stupid, but that's kind of where I fall in line. And Curry played really well in the four games that the Warriors did win in 2015. Yeah, as you said, I think it was game two where Curry just had a really bad shooting game. And, and yeah, that uh, that's kind of um, the life for a guy like Steph Curry who is consistently taking extremely deep and difficult three-point attempts on occasion, he's going to have an off-shooting night, and it's not going to look pretty. But for the most part, he's been he's been excellent in the finals. Okay, so we, we've gotten through our, our top four. So who's your number five? So at number five, I have James Harden. Yep, I, ha- I have the same. Reigning MVP. And I, I could get into you know the statistics. We all know they're extremely gaudy. He took the most pull-up threes in the playoffs. Uh, as soon as like they faced the drop coverages in... Uh, Minnesota and Utah, he just went nuts. He's arguably almost as much of like a scheme changer as um, Steph Curry. He gets goes about it in a different ways where he'll kind of ISO the opposing big to death other than making them come out to 30 feet. Same overall uh, you know, result, though. Those are the two guys who I feel are kind of really bad news for the kind of plotting rim protectors that are going to get played out of the playoffs as long as those two guys are playing. Right, and you know he put up just monster isolation numbers. I believe it was over 1.3 points per possession per isolation play that he ran, which is just just crazy to think about. And you know during the regular season, as you mentioned, there's there's going to be a lot of teams that uh, the Rockets face that that have you know slower big men or you know guards that are weaker on defense that he can he can take advantage of. Uh, but you know. I, I I almost wanted to drop Harden down even further based on his performance against the Warriors, uh, but you know the Warriors are so good defensively because they don't have any weak links. Uh, but he he struggled mightily in that series, especially from downtown. I am a huge Harden supporter. I think that he gets you know too much flack for a lot of the way he plays and like his move that's probably a travel but doesn't get called where he steps back to three. I really wanted to kind of like quash a lot of the criticism he gets, you know, whether it was like the game six against the Spurs last uh, the season before where um, he just did not play well. I wanted to chalk that up to like him needing more help and him being fatigued. But this year it was hard for me. Like at some point I was just like, well, I kind of just have to accept that he's playing terribly in yeah. his playoffs. Like I couldn't think of any excuses for him. Um, other than obviously the defensive prowess of the Warriors, but that was weird for me. I still think he deserves to be in the top five, but I- I'll agree that that was that was a little concerning. Yeah, you know, prior to this postseason, you know, he he'd had some struggles in the playoffs, as you mentioned, Game Six against San Antonio. Uh, you know, he had 
I think it was an elimination game uh, when he was in the conference finals with uh, with Dwight Howard against the Warriors, uh, where he really struggled as well. But in prior postseasons, I thought you know the good kind of outweighed the bad for the most part. You know, he had some some real clunkers, but at the same time, he also had a bunch of excellent performances. Whereas this postseason, uh, they had uh, a bunch of stats throughout the playoffs where game ones he played extremely well. But outside of the game ones in all the series that he participated in, uh, he, he didn't really have too many good moments. Yeah, it was it was weird. I still kind of am giving him the benefit of the doubt, and I hope to see him back there next. Well, and his, his, his regular season performance and really his well. durability. You know, he missed a few games this year, but... Uh, for the most part, he's out there, and he's you know he's one of those guys that as long as you put a you know average supporting cast around him and he's your best player, your team's going to win fifty plus games. So so I agree, I I do have him in my top five, although I did have a few hesitations, and and my my biggest reason for that is my number six. I I considered wanting to move him to five, but I stuck with him at six, and that is Chris Paul. I also have Chris Paul at six, and you know he's a guy that. I think he's another guy that doesn't get enough credit for just how impactful he is in winning basketball games. You know, for the Houston Rockets this year, he played 58 games, and the record for the Rockets when he played was 50-8, and eight, which, you know, is, uh, is basically a 70-win pace. Uh, and in previous seasons with the Clippers, uh, you know, in the 2016-17 season, he played 61 games. They were over a 57-win pace during the games he played. The year before that, in which Blake Griffin missed over half the season, they still won, uh, you know, 50 games out of the 74 that he played. Uh, You know, pretty much every season for the last five years, Chris Paul, when he's been out there, his teams have won about twice as many games as they've lost. Yeah, definitely. And what really sold him as the number six player in the league for me, I probably would have had him around here anyway, but I'm a lot more certain after his Game 5 performance against Golden State I felt like he was really the missing ingredients the Rockets needed where you saw game five, no one was really playing that well. You know, they're kind of going to, into like the rocket shell of themselves mold, mold that we've seen before. But yep. CP3 kind of was, you know, tired of not uh, scoring baskets or his team was struggling. And so he just said, you know what, I'm just going to do this myself. And he had an amazing game five performance. Um, got hurt at the end, unfortunately, so we didn't get to see what it would have happened if he stayed. But I think the Rockets really had a good chance because it seemed like um, he would be there, like he would have been there. You know, obviously one thing will lead to another and it'll be a completely different scenario with him out there. But if he was out there with that Game 7 uh, Rockets squad that missed 27 threes, or I feel like Chris Paul is the kind of guy who will just get a bucket. And that was really huge that obviously that they lost him. And I don't. there's no one below him on this list. Who I would like have that much confidence in in that situation? Yeah, not only the uh, you know the the offensive production they lost when he was out, but his defense was you know has been incredible throughout his career and and was in that series as well. You know that huge run that the Warriors went on in the third quarter. You got to imagine not only does Chris Paul hit some shots to kind of stem the tide, but also you know locking down a guy like Steph Curry a little bit and and preventing some of those open looks he got. For sure. For sure. Uh, Who did you have number seven? So I had Anthony Davis. Me too. Okay, so, you know, he's 
He's just a monster on both ends. Last season's numbers, he put up 28 points on 61% true shooting, 11 rebounds, 2.6 blocks, 30% usage, and, you know, also he brings it on the defensive end, finished third in uh, the Defensive Player of the Year voting. Uh, He was just an absolute monster, and it really felt like he came into his own, uh, you know, with that unfortunate Boogie Cousins injury and them trading for Nikola Mirotic. That combination really, uh, really worked well, and Davis playing at center uh, was was an absolute beast. There, are, there are a few teams who would lose to Marcus Cousins and then become better. Right. I know that they did acquire Nikola Mirotic. We can all agree that you know I talk about how good Mirotic is in my article. He's he's not as good as Demarcus Cousins was before his Achilles tear at basketball. Right. Right. So the fact that. Davis um, was able to kind of fill in and be both himself and DeMarcus Cousins to like a, you know, like kind of a combination of both um, and keep this team afloat just goes to show how versatile he is, how he will just adjust to any situation. And he's the reason that they were in the playoffs by far. The biggest reason he, they were in the playoffs, Drew Holiday's great. He was, he's arguably more impressive as how he single-handedly, I felt, led them in 2015 when Drew was out a lot of the season and yeah he's crazy I mean if if, if, if he had if he had a few more like you know maybe if he had a better team he would be above some of these guys honestly you know you kind of have to look at these guys kind of past accomplishments and say well they've been to the playoffs more than twice so they're probably better than Davis right now and I think what really keeps him at number seven for me is just how much I value primary initiation. All, all, all six guys, you know, I think are elite primary creators and that's what separate. That's the only thing he lacks in my opinion. Yeah. And you know, you, you go going back to the, uh, the Boogie Cousins versus Miritich discussion. Yeah, of course, Boogie Cousins uh, prior to that injury is a better basketball player, but it also just shows you how much fit uh, is a factor in terms of winning basketball games. I think Miritich just fit into not only playing next to Davis, you know, they could switch more screens, uh, you know, they could run more because, you know, and he could kind of, uh, you know, run to the three-point line while Davis ran to the rim. Uh, so, you, and, and that's kind of the way that Alvin Gentry likes to play that up-tempo style. So, you know, despite the fact that Miritich isn't quite as good, I think he was just a better fit. And, and again, putting Davis at center puts him more near the rim, which, uh, you know, allows him to use his uh, length and athleticism even more. Yeah, when you have a guy like Davis, it allows you to find someone like Nikola Miritich that, you know, is a limited player in some regards, but can be used to the fullest because you just can put pretty much whatever around Anthony Davis. And, you know, either it'll be a bad fit and they'll still be good, or a good fit and he'll turn a good player into a great one. Now, uh, my number eight I have is uh, Giannis. Interesting. I had Kyrie Irving, but I'll let you go first about Giannis. Okay, so um, the biggest thing about Giannis is, and again, we're forecasting these guys for this upcoming season, uh, the guy has improved exponentially every season. You know, his rookie year... Averaged 6.8 points per game. Second year, 12.7. Third, 16.9. Fourth, 22.9. And last year, nearly 27 points per game. His rebounding, his field goal percentage, and his usage rate has improved all five seasons. Uh, You know, who's to say this guy isn't going to make another leap into the near 30 points and 11 rebound category? 
I definitely agree. I, I took a little bit more of a uh, conservative approach with a lot of these guys where I tried to be like, okay, what can I, you know, barring like, um, after, after what I've seen from them so far, what can I deduce? And obviously, you, maybe you should deduce that Giannis will take a step forward, but I took a little bit more cautious approach. For me, I think this season is kind of different. I think he has reached the outer limits of what he can be until he develops a three-point shot or, be, or tightens up his handling. And I think that's what kept him at number 10 for me, uh, was just that I, I'm just worried about the impact he can have on a possession-to-possession basis unless he has a team that, like, you know, loves to play fast or, you know, he can develop one of those two skills because I don't feel comfortable with him as a primary creator. But he's also not that – I mean, he obviously is a great lob threat, but he's not the ideal off-ball player either. So if he can develop one of those two things, though, he he vaults definitely a few spots for me. Yeah, I mean, all of those points are valid. I agree with most of that, but I almost think that's more of a factor in the postseason as opposed to the regular season. You know, the, the Celtics were able to, you know, take advantage of the fact that he lacked that jump shot and that the Bucks' offense was, was pretty stationary. Uh, but I think, uh, you know, Coach uh, Budenholzer coming in, he's going to have, uh, you know, some more intricate sets and, and play calls that will, will allow Giannis to maybe be a little bit more effective in the half court. But, but also during the regular season, I think he can, he can dominate just through mostly, uh, you know, the transition and semi-transition possessions. Yeah, I should specify. I, I, I mostly was referring to the postseason. I think uh, I, I definitely factored in, like, you know, being a primary initiator or a three-point threat in the postseason uh, for putting him at 10 and not higher. And I, I, I will mention that you're right, that, like, it didn't really matter that he didn't have either of those skills in the regular season. He still got to, he still took 58% or 54, rather, percent of his shots at the rim. Um, last season, which was 96th percentile according to cleaning the glass for forwards. So he's not having a problem doing what he wants to do in the regular season. It's just when he faces an elite defense like the Celtics, is he going to you know, get to the rim as much or is he going to have to settle for a lot of post fadeaways, which he can do, but is definitely not his forte. Yeah, I totally agree. So you said you had Kyrie at that spot. What are your, what are your uh, reasons for, for that? It kind of goes back to me valuing being an elite primary initiator overall else. You know, you need to have, you need to be able to make the reads out of pick and rolls. You need to be able to shoot off the dribble from three, which Kyrie's good at both. He can get to the rim pretty easily. And, you know, obviously he'll look better than he maybe is, especially defensively on the Celtics. But I think after the beginning of last season, you saw the run they had when Hayward went out. I think he was the catalyst behind all of that. Obviously they got unexpected help from Tatum and Brown, but Kyrie was really the glue that held that all together. I know they did find the playoffs without him, but I would have really liked to see what would have happened if he stayed healthy. Right. I mean, the uh, the interesting thing about that is, you know, in a series against a Cleveland or, you know, a Houston or a Golden State, I think having Kyrie in that isolation skill, which I think he's arguably the best in the league at that, along with like a guy like Durant, uh, you know, that those are the types of players, especially in the offensive end, that are so valuable because when defenses get that those switch-happy schemes and really bog down, uh, you know, most of your offense, having a guy like Kyrie who can score uh, on any given possession uh, has such great value. I, I still, I have him a little bit lower, um, just mainly because even though I thought his defense was a little bit better last year with Boston than it was in his years with Cleveland, I still think he's you know below average on that end. And also, he is he is still a guy that I think uh, mostly 
like a Durant, I think, uh, you know, is an extremely gifted and efficient scorer, uh, but, but doesn't really help anybody when he does so. That's true. I thought he showed a little bit more playmaking chops in Boston, but, you know, that offense is so kind of made uh, easy by, you know, the Stevens kind of sets that you can look like a better, you know, initiator than you actually are. Even, like you said, with just, like, the isolation moments, um, I think it bears mentioning uh, he shot 41% from three, and according to Cleaning the Glass, only was assisted on 53% of those shots. So that's almost half the shots he was taking in uh, last season were, you know, off the dribble. And when you have a guy like that and you have the ability to get to the rim, it was a great finisher, 62% of the rim. It's just a very nice offensive weapon to build an offense around. And just, like, I think the uh, improvements in passing and finding guys open is what gave him the edge over some guys maybe, like, uh, Damian Lillard or like Kemba Walker who are like lower on my list but have a lot of those similar traits yeah I mean the Kyrie Irving uh, is is one of the most enjoyable players to watch yeah his ability to, to spin the ball off the glass and all those things one of the key reasons why on my uh, an episode from a couple of weeks ago I did with Evan Dial on uh, NBA league pass rankings I had the I had the Celtics ranked as, uh, as the, my number two team to watch yeah it's, it's always fun and watching them kind of uh defy the expectations even without Kyrie Irving uh the playoffs last year was a treat so my number nine might come as a bit of a shock so so prepare yourself I've got Victor Oladipo I I don't hate that I mean you look at what you want from a A1 guy and he kind of checked all those boxes last year I mean, it, a lot of it just comes down to how much you think last season was real and, you know, moving forward. I, you know, there are a lot of people that think that was kind of fluky. I don't. I think that was legitimate. I think he's got, uh, as you said, everything you want. A guy that can get to the rim and finish well. He's a great athlete. He's got the pull-up game, the three-point game, and the defense. You know, a guy that uh, was first-team all-defense last year. Uh, and, uh, yeah, I just thought uh, offensively he, he really carried an Indiana Pacers team to being one of the better, uh, you know, offenses in the league despite not a ton of talent around him. Yeah, my case with him is, is just confusing to me because when Pacers got on their good run last year, I thought that they were taking too many long mid-range shots and making an unsustainable number of them. And that's why I thought they were, you know, we're going to be a fringe playoff team at the end of the day, and then they ended up being one of the better teams in the East, and they took Cleveland to seven games. So I don't really trust myself with the Pacers anymore, and I think that Oladipo's a good representation of the Pacers. You know, he took, according to Cleaning the Glass, uh, 27% of his shots were from long mid-range, which is a little high, you know. You want to see more threes, probably. Right. Then, and he only had uh, comparatively 30%. So when you're only taking 3% more threes than long mid-range shots. That's definitely a cause for concern. And and he made 43% of his long mid-range shots. That could just stay, you know? That could just carry over. But whenever Oladipo or, you know, the Pacers to a larger extent makes and takes that many long mid-range shots, I'm going to be like, well, naturally, you know, mathematically, you're a regression candidate. Right. However, they did that for an entire season, and that's not, nothing to sneeze at, so... I don't really trust myself with Oladipo. I had him 18th. I probably should have had him higher. And I think he's somewhere in the middle of where we're both saying. 
Yeah, um, and, and again, I think, you know, he's still young. I believe he's 25 or 26, so he's a guy that I think could could still make a leap. And, and again, given that that was really his first season as, as the primary guy in an offense, I think there's, uh, you know, he, I think there's a lot of learning and experience he gained uh, from from last season and including that uh, seven-game series against the Cavs where, you know, he get, he got double-teamed and a lot of times he seemed kind of flummoxed by that, probably because he'd never seen that before. Right, right, yeah. And he, if you're going to bet on any young guy to work at his craft every year, we saw what he did last season. and It's definitely valid to think he'll be the ninth-best player in the league next season. All right, who do you then have at that, at that spot? So I had Russell Westbrook. Um, I don't love it, but I feel like he can't go that much lower just because, again, like Kyrie, like all the guys ahead of him except Davis, again, a guy I feel like can, you know, prop up an offense through his primary creation. You look at OKC, they, it was it was a, not a great situation last year. You know, they, had to, they were trying to work in mellow all season. Paul George was good, but, you know, not anything beyond what anyone expected. Right. Probably slightly worse. Steven Adams is a great, you know, role man, but he's not going to give you that much shot versatility. And he's been constantly pushing teams to 47, 48 wins. I didn't like his playoff performance. I thought he was way too pull-up jump shot happy. And I think that's why I don't have him higher. However, it still feels like he shouldn't be lower than around 9. I would not take any objections to moving Giannis up for him, but... Like I said, I really like having... I, I just think that, you know, the guys who can be the A1 creator are the most valuable, and that's what Russ has over Giannis. Yeah, I, I had Westbrook next. I had him at number 10. So, yeah, I'm, we're pretty much in the in the same ballpark with him. And, and I agree that the postseason was, was incredibly disappointing. Had just 49.3 uh, true shooting percentage. And you mentioned a lot of mid-range pull-up jumpers. But, you know, uh, in his defense, I think that had a lot to do with the uh, the Rudy Gobert effect. Oh, for sure. It, it just seems like maybe, you know, and this is tough for him because having Paul George on the team made him, made his made people's view of him a lot worse, I think, because he finally, you know, Oladipo wasn't quite the all-star that he became in Indiana on the Thunder, so, or wasn't seen that way. So when he had Paul George, all of a sudden people are, you know, dogging him for taking these shots that he was having success with the season before. And I don't think he was that much different of a player, save the first couple of weeks where he didn't play as well when he was trying to adjust to having Paul George and Mello. I just think that it's kind of funny how the perception around him changes because he's given a better team and kind of leads to a similar result. Yeah, the the way Westbrook has been able to, as you mentioned, prop up an offense, especially those teams that, uh, you know, general manager Sam Presti has consistently brought in players that, that can't shoot, uh, you know, so there's been a lack of spacing throughout Westbrook's entire career, and yet he still is able to put up big numbers and, and keep their offense afloat. The reason, you know, and, and I was kind of debating between Westbrook and Oladipo, uh, those two guys, it was really close for me. I just, with Oladipo's defense, I think there's such a big edge defensively there where Westbrook oftentimes will just, uh, you know, loaf back or, uh, you know, not fi- see where his man goes and lose him for an open three. I just think the difference defensively makes up for the fact that Westbrook is probably, uh, you know, a, a more impactful offensive player than Oladipo. Yeah, I don't, I don't see a problem with that. It's kind of funny because we all, I think there is a consensus now that Victor Oladipo is a better player than Paul George. 
which makes makes it seem like Indiana might have won the trade. Yes. Uh, but at the same time, Oladipo could have never been that guy next to Russ. However, what I think is funny is now that you have Oladipo over Russ, which is especially a slap in the face to Thunder fans, in my opinion. <laughs> yeah, the, that trade is, is really fascinating because I, I was one of the people that uh, you know kind of slammed the Pacers. I thought that was a poor trade for them when it happened. I feel like that was kind of the consensus amongst most NBA people. But, but yeah, you, you look at it now and you say, uh, you know, they've got Oladipo locked up for the long term, and they've got Sabonis on a, a rookie-scale contract. Uh, you know, the Thunder being able to retain Paul George makes it a little more even, but still, I'd say, you know, I, I think it's fair to say the Pacers, uh, you know, clearly won that trade. Yeah, yeah. The, the, the criticism kind of came back to not getting a pick, like a first-round pick or anything from Paul George, but they're fine, they're fine with that one if they have Oladipo, honestly. So you had Giannis at number 10. Who'd you have at, uh, at number 11? So for number 11, I went Draymond Green. Okay. Um, I just, I think his the league has only evolved towards his game. When you look at, he can guard pretty much one through five. At least you can, he can't guard like the, you know, the James Harden types, but he can at least like hold his own switch down to them. And you look at how many centers were kind of exposed uh, when they had to go out behind the arc to guard and that just won't be a problem for Draymond. Like, he is the one guy you can point to who won't have a problem with that, and that's so valuable, and it's a huge reason why Warriors are able to turn it up on defense every playoffs. Yeah, my I've got Draymond a little bit lower, but, uh, I mean, I, I agree that his value, especially come playoff time, is, is so huge. Uh, he's the best defensive player on that team, and, and probably, uh, you know, the, the third best player and definitely the third most important player on that Warriors squad behind the likes of Curry and Durant. My biggest thing, and and it kind of was a a Warriors problem, not necessarily just a Draymond Green problem, but uh, given that they've made four consecutive finals and have won three titles, uh, you know, you saw it last year where Green and the Warriors kind of, uh, you know, were a little bit uh, lackadaisical throughout the regular season, and uh, I don't really see that changing much, and uh, you know, when Draymond isn't bringing it 100% defensively, his regular season value to me isn't that high. I agree, especially since his shooting has kind of tailed off in recent years, which honestly will probably keep him from my top 10 now and in the future. But I, it's hard for me to really dock, and you can tell by the fact that I had Durant number two, it's hard for me to dock regular season apathy on defense, uh, the, uh, the Warriors for doing this, because I don't know, like... I, I, I definitely empathize with being better than everyone else, and especially having that 73-win season and then losing. Like At this point, it's kind of taboo to like care too much in, for the Warriors in the regular season, right? Like, yeah, that's true. <laughs> they, they've kind of optimized this whole thing. They win 60-ish games, they turn it on in the playoffs, and they win. That's what works for them. Giving full effort every night doesn't work for them, as we found out. So, uh, so my number 11, I had Jimmy Butler. I have him at number 12. Okay, so that's perfect. Uh, you know, the the thing with Butler for me is, again, he's, uh, you know, I, I value uh, the, the two-way guys, the guys that can really bring it on both ends of the floor and, and have a positive impact, and he certainly is one of those guys. You know, offensively, averaged 22 points a game last year on 59% true shooting. Uh, you know, he had the highest usage percentage on the Timberwolves team, although I think, uh, you know, I... I'm one of those people that think 
Carl Anthony Towns should be the highest usage on that team, but uh, they uh, they don't seem to get him the ball enough. But uh, you know the the Timberwolves were were the fourth best offense in the league with Butler as their as their main offensive creator. And then also I thought this stat was interesting. Uh, you know Minnesota's defensive rating with the Carl Anthony Towns and Butler on the floor was 104 points per 100 possessions. Uh, their defensive rating with Carl Anthony Towns and no Butler on the floor was 112 points per 100 possessions. And that just goes to show you the kind of impact Butler still has on the defensive end. Yeah, Butler, uh, you know, some people say he, like, took a step back defensively because of the Wolves' overall numbers. I didn't watch them close enough to confirm or deny that. One thing I'll say about his offensive game is it really kind of uh, confuses me, honestly, because <laughs> here he's put up ridiculous finishing numbers uh, on offenses that don't make sense, whether it was this one, uh, where you just have not that much spacing. You know, you have a lot of ball-dominant guys who seem like they're arguing for touches, whether Tim Wiggins or Towns or Jeff Teague, who's not, like, the perfect floor spacer point guard for them. And he still finished, he finished over 60% from the rim for the fourth season in a row and, you know, got to the rim fairly easily, you know, shot well on mid-range shots. Um, doesn't really shoot many threes, so I wonder with him. I Hopefully we'll get to see him in, like, you know, a really cohesive offensive system to see how we would react to that because he's a guy who kind of is able to make sense of all the chaos. He's a great cutter, great finisher, super athletic. I wonder if his lack of a three ball will ever, you know, limit him when it comes to him being, like, let's say he joins the Lakers next season. Like, will he, you know, ride as much as, you know, not a ball-dominant guy and a kind of off-ball guy next to LeBron? You know, maybe, but he might be a guy who's best suited towards these weird, chaotic offensive situations. Yeah, he, uh, he is definitely an interesting case, and, and you mentioned his good finishing numbers. I think a couple of things that, you know, maybe lead to that is, one, that he's he's extremely strong. You know, he, he doesn't get pushed around easily. But then also, you know, you mentioned he has pretty good mid-range numbers as well. You know, the, the, the entire NBA has kind of gone away from the mid-range and saying that that's a bad shot. But I still think the mid-range is an effective tool if that's a threat uh, you know that uh, the threat of that mid-range shot allows guys to maybe get to the basket easier than others. Yeah, and these are definitely arguments for him. I, I just I wonder if we're giving him too much the benefit of the doubt that he would be this player and as like the second option because I don't know if he's a number one option on a championship team. My question with him all comes down to like what is his fit on a contender. Right. Yeah. Yeah. As you mentioned, we may see that uh, with him being a free agent and and declining, or the free agent after this season and declining uh, a possible extension as of now. Uh, my uh, let's moving on to my number twelve. I've got uh, Paul George at that spot. See, I had Paul George at number twenty. So okay. Uh, and the, the reason I had him so low uh, was because I just have never bought the whole Paul George as a creator thing i think he's really good off the dribble from three and i think he can really uh punish defenders on straight line drives but this whole like kind of paul george can like prop up the offense while russ sits it never really worked right the the second units never really quite made sense he's not a guy who sets up others in the slightest other than like the obvious pass i still think obviously number 20 player is nothing to sneeze at and second time I've said that, I don't know why, but uh, he's still like, to me he's kind of like the best case scenario of a 3 and D player, but I, I, 
I don't know. Something. I, I feel like he's just around that number twenty spot for me. But okay. I'd be interested to hear your opinion. So I guess I kind of agree with you in terms of I, I don't really love him as a primary creator, but honestly, at this point, I would say even outside of the top ten. I feel like we kind of are at guys that are, as a number one option, just aren't good enough to be a, a championship-level player. So I think Paul George is a perfect number two guy. I think he does have the ability to to create for you know a few minutes here or there. I think the uh, the big issue with his uh, you know struggles in that area last season is just I think the Thunder bench uh, you know had some issues last year. Again, they lack a lot of shooting, so it's hard for him to be able to space the floor and get to the basket. Uh, and, and so, you know, I think a lot of the Thunder issues were kind of, uh, you know, um, the reason for Paul, Str- Paul George's struggles in that area. But, you know, you look at the 3 and D elements, as you talked about, you know, he's he shot 40% from three last season. He's been a 40% three-point shooter, uh, you know, the last couple of years. And then also, uh, you know, he's, he's still, I think, one of the best perimeter defenders in the league. Uh, he was second in the NBA in total deflections last season. So, uh, you know, the fact that uh, you know, he can be, in my eyes, an elite number two guy. That's why I have him at that number 12 spot. Yeah, I think our main disagreement, and I can see that he hasn't been put in a position to do this, I'm not sure if he can be a secondary ball handler on a championship team. And Interesting. That's what, that's, that's what gives me pause. I just don't see, like, some of the guys I have ahead of him, Drew Holiday, uh, Victor Oladipo, I don't know if they're that, Gordon Hayward, I don't know if they're that A1 guy, but I at least feel comfortable, you know, having them be the number two guy with the ball. I just don't know if Paul George is there. And like I said, like the shooting was terrible around him. Like the second unit, he was like thrown to the wolves when Russ wasn't on the floor. But until I see that, until I really see him break down defenses consistently and find the right pass, I, I just, I just don't know. I see where you're coming from. We'll, we'll just have to agree to disagree on that one. So then, who do you have uh, at your number twelve spot? Um, so I actually had Butler at 12 and we oh, already Butler. discussed him right. but uh, yeah that's fine um, at number 13 this might be a little too high I don't know how to rank him um, but I do really think he's probably worthy of this but I don't know Joel Embiid okay. uh, was my number 13 and when you just look at his ability to prop up that Philly defense I know they had that 16 game winning streak without him I think a lot of that was kind of just uh, you know late April uh, early April late March basketball I don't know how to uh, what to make of that and you, he had his struggles uh, in the playoffs against the Celtics and it's a real concern that he couldn't get out to Al Horford on those pick and pops um, right a lot of the time but at the same time when you look at regular season production which I sometimes uh, you know won't prioritize as much I feel like in the right matchup in the playoffs he can be good I'm still very concerned but I'm not quite willing to dock him yet, despite all that we've seen, uh, for not being able to get out on the perimeter. I, I think there's, I don't know, you talked about, uh, you know, kind of like projection for next season. I kind of factored that in a little bit just from the NBA Africa tapes we've seen of him looking in better shape. Um, he's gotten rid of the mask, which hurt his peripheral vision. I thought in the playoffs in the post, I thought he actually made a lot of progress as a post passer mm-hmm. and didn't really get noticed because in the beginning of the season, he was dreadful when double teamed and I don't know I just I think he's the best center in the league and 13's a good spot for him yeah I've got him right in that same general vicinity and uh you know I I agree with all of your concerns about the playoffs but yeah the fact that 
you know, uh, he was coming back from injury. I think he came back near the end of the, uh, or in the middle of the series against Miami. So again, probably not in the greatest of shape when he went up against Boston and also the mask, uh, you know, screwing with his vision. I certainly, uh, you know, understand why uh, he may have struggled a little bit. And also it was his first postseason, you know, and a lot of times that is just kind of a, a learning process for uh, for a lot of guys that have never experienced the playoffs, which are, you know, another level intensity-wise. I, I will admit that, though, the, the lack of getting out on the three-point line was very concerning. It's something to watch, but it's not something I'm going to dock him significantly for quite yet. Well, and, uh, you know, the encouraging thing for him in the regular season was that he played 63 games, which I think was more than really anyone would have expected. Uh, what are your thoughts in terms of the game totals for him this upcoming year? I think, uh, you know, barring anything catastrophic, it'll be around the same. He's still a guy who, uh, you know, has little little nicks and bruises along the way just from being as big as he is. I think that uh, the days of Sixers fans freaking out every time he does something athletic-looking not in a game are over. You know, he kind of tweeted uh, last year, I'm not made of glass. And, (laughs) like, there's a video of him playing soccer um, in Cameroon earlier uh, this week. And or last week, and you know, people seem to not be too concerned with that at this point. He's kind of, I think, people have seen him play a full season and are ready to take a different approach when discussing his durability. Yeah, you know, if uh, if we were ranking these players based on who is the best Twitter follow, I think he would be probably be number one. Uh, oh, but <laughs> but uh, my number thirteen, I had Kyrie, and you know, we talked about him a little bit. You had him at number eight, uh, and and one of the things. That, uh, that I've really liked about uh, what Kyrie has done the last couple of seasons is that he's upped his, his three-point attempts. You know, the 2015-16 season where the Cavs won the title, he shot just 4.9 uh, attempts per game from three. The 2016-17 season, he upped that to 6.1, and last year he shot 6.8 threes per game. And, you know, with that spike in, in shooting more threes, his true shooting percentage has improved each of those years as well. He's gone from 54 to 58 to last year's 61% true shooting. So, you know, a guy that, uh, you know, shoots 40% from downtown like he does, and he can do it in a variety of ways, you know, off the dribble or catch and shoot, uh, you know, if he continues to ramp up those three-point attempts, I think that's just going to continue to help him. Oh, totally. And, uh, yeah, I'm a Celtics fan, so I'm obviously looking forward to next season. And I'll get carried away if I keep talking about that, but... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, so I I, uh, I had Joel Embiid at uh, at 14. We just discussed him. So who do you have at that spot? So this is my first one that I think is kind of off the beaten path. Um, at number 14, I have Drew Holiday. Okay, interesting. Yeah, he uh, you know he certainly showed out in the playoffs last year. Yeah, and I think he quietly had a tremendous regular season. And the playoffs, obviously, he stepped his game up a good amount, but it wasn't like this night and day situation like I think for a lot of the Pelicans successful run especially without DeMarcus Cousins because he upped his usage um, he was he was the player he advertised and I'm about to praise his mid-range shooting after saying that Victor Oladipo's was unsustainable but at the same time Drew Holiday has finished above 40% from mid-range in the last five seasons of his career he shot 47%, which was 5% higher than any season in the past. But he just, I don't know, like, he's getting it off the dribble. The roll space was kind of uh, 
clogged at times because they, if you remember, they switched to Miritich near the end of the regular season, but they started Mecha Okafor for yes. a lot of their time without DeMarcus Cousins. So there was never like a clear lane for Davis to roll in, and I thought a huge part of their offense was Drew in the mid-range, um, getting a shot whenever he wanted. High efficiency. He was great getting to the rim. Uh, he shot 65% at the rim this season, and especially in the playoffs when the when they started playing Miritich more and the lane was more open for him, you really saw how good he could be at getting to the hoop and finishing. His defense, he might be the best defensive point guard in the league. Um, he can he was checking Kevin Durant for series, and that was only because, you know, their other options were Etwan Moore and uh, Solomon Hill, who couldn't hit a shot. <laughs> Otherwise, he would have been out there checking Durant. But right. The fact that, and, and like he, when they played OKC in the regular season, he was switched on to Paul George, and that kind of... Um, versatility defensively is what put him one spot over Damian Lillard. I, I spoiled my 15th one for me. Just because you look at a guy like Lillard, and this is who I compare him a lot to, because I think Lillard is consensus uh, by consensus a little higher than him on these rankings, but I think Holiday offers a lot of what Lillard offers uh, in the regular season. Maybe the shot off the dribble isn't great from three. It was the year before. It kind of took a step back this year. But um, when you look at like kind of playoff versatility, it's it's holiday every time for me. Obviously, it might look a little better than it actually is because they played each other in the postseason, and Holiday I thought severely outplayed Damian Lillard. Yes. But uh, other than that, like I, I, it's going to be hard to get that out of my head. But I'm trying to control for that bias, and still I'd rather just have Holiday. Well, and uh, another positive aspect for Holiday last year was that he was healthy. You know, he. he... He'd suffered a bunch of injuries in previous years. I think some some foot ailments uh, had uh, had kept him out of the lineup for the past couple of years. But yeah. uh, he was around for most of last season, and I really think you know that Alvin Gentry uh, pace and space system suits his offensive game really well. I should also mention he played shooting guard for most of last season. Yeah, uh, as we both know, because and I thought that's what helped him preserve his body uh, for the postseason. Because I still kind of consider him a point guard playing the two. Just because when it was gut check time against the uh, Blazers, you saw Rondo sitting out a lot of crunch time minutes, and they just kind of ran the pick and roll with Holiday and Davis. I think that what yeah, if if they had to score one half court possession or whatever in the playoffs, it's going to be Holiday at point guard handling the ball. So I still think he's a point guard. He was technically a shooting guard last season, which makes the uh, Lillard comparison a little murky. I, I'll admit that, but. Um, yeah, I, I think that uh, hopefully Peyton can at least provide a modicum of what Rondo did. I, I think that Rondo's impact, especially near the playoffs, is underrated still. And that Peyton, we, we, it would be like a maybe 90th percentile outcome for him to be a starting quality point guard, but um, at least in this system. Um, but um, yeah, I, I really hope that Holiday can continue to play off ball because he thrived there and he stayed healthy there. Right, that that kind of brings up. I was about to ask this question: Is you know, with Rondo, he he was able to play off the ball a bunch and kind of just be the scoring guard, which I think suits his game more. But say, for instance, you know, Alfred Payton doesn't really work out, and Holiday ends up being more of the primary, you know, playmaker facilitator. How do you imagine him being in that sort of role? I think he'll do fine. I think the bigger problem is that it's a bigger wear and tear on his body. When you when you want him to play like elite defense and also be that primary creator, yeah, um, I, I think that he's fine whenever he has the ball in a primary creation mode. Um, it's more about durability for me, and 
I, I would hope they can find an alternative if Peyton doesn't live up to that, which I think there's you know a decent chance he doesn't. He hasn't really been a contributed to winning basketball at any point in his career. Maybe this will be different. I think Julius Randle um, running the break will kind of arguably fill the Rondo more, more, role more than uh, Peyton will, just because Randle, we saw his ability to grab and go on the Lakers. But in the half court, it will, it will be up to Peyton to at least do something um, with the ball. And maybe they'll look to trade their first rounder for a point guard if he can't. I think they should use that first rounder to find a wing. That's obviously a huge weakness for them. Right. But they might just have to use it on a point guard to preserve Drew. Yeah, and uh, you know I've I've seen some videos this off season of Anthony Davis working on his ball handling, so maybe he'll be able to do a little bit more grab and go as well, which would help. But uh, but yeah, that's that's really interesting. I have him a little bit lower, but he is in my top thirty somewhere. So uh, we'll, I'll let you know when we get to that point. Thanks so much for listening to Duncan Dynasty. I am Garrett Bouguet. If you'd like to contact me, I'm on Facebook at facebook.com/slash Garrett Bouguet. I'm also on Twitter at Garrett Bouguet. If, uh, if you'd like to email me, my email is g-bouguet at onu.edu. Feel free, uh, any comments, critiques, compliments about the pod, I'm, I'm happy to hear it, and I, hopefully I can get back to you as well. If you'd like to show your support for Duncan Dynasty, you can subscribe to the show on iTunes. If you can leave a rating and review on there, that's, uh, that's terrific. And if, uh, if you don't use iTunes, leaving a rating and review on that as well is uh, extremely helpful. Thanks to Scott Levine for uh, being a guest this week. That was just part one, which uh, we covered players 1 through 14 on our top 30 list for uh, players for the 2018-19 NBA season. Uh, Next week we will have our players 15 through 30, so stay tuned for that. But uh, once again, thank you so much, and have a good rest of your day. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Mobile phone companies say they offer home internet. But if their internet comes from a cell phone network, you should know. It's just phone internet, not home internet. Keep your home up to speed with Cox. Cox internet is faster and has more reliable download speeds than 5G home internet. Cox is the real home internet you're looking for. Based on Cox analysis of UCLA speed test intelligence data, Q3 2022 and Cox serviceable areas, visit cox.com internet for details.